0: In a world where we experience economic turmoil, grief, poverty, and crime, we are not consumed by the flames, but rather we use those flames to light our path toward a brighter future. Through our faith, we learn to receive the strength and resilience we need to survive and thrive in the midst of life's greatest challenges. So let us be like the fire that burns hot and bright never letting the world's darkness extinguish our inner flame. Let us draw upon the unshakable resilience that comes from Jesus alone and emerge from the trials of life stronger and more resilient than ever before. Good morning and Mother happy Mother's Day. It's so good to have you here in the room and those of you joining us online. A little follow-up from what Brian just said on Wednesday night. If you would like to be baptized on Wednesday night uh, this week, uh, you can still do that. You can uh, go online or at the Information Center following the service, and uh, we'll get you all set up, and we will rejoice with you in that. Another little side note is that next uh, on Saturday, uh, six days from now, We're having an information meeting. This is in the happenings that you got on the way in. We have another trip to Israel and Rome that we're doing in about nine months. If you'd like information on that, we're having a meeting next. I keep saying next. The, The next time there's a Saturday. Saturday. Uh, after the service. So anyway, I just want to tell you all that. Hey, it is good to have you here on Mother's Day weekend. Happy Mother's Day to all the moms. Uh, my mom is in Vancouver, Washington. My sister flew out from Atlanta to be with her. My brother drove up from Lake Oswego to be with her. And I'm here. I know. Thank you. I chose to be with you instead of my mom. That's how much I love you. That's how dedicated I am to you. So here's the deal. Because I'm not with my mom today, I don't get to give her a Mother's Day hug. So if you need a Mother's Day hug today, I'm your guy. Um, Because I need a Mother's Day hug. And and if you're a mom and you can't be with your kids today, I'm your guy. If you're a kid and you can't be with your mom for whatever reason, maybe she's dead. And you just need a hug, I'm there. I also know Mother's Day is a rough weekend for some people. If you just need a hug, and you say, is this going to be a little bit much? No, no. I got more hugs than Volkswagen got bugs. I will be there all afternoon hugging after the service. If you need a hug, I've got it for you, okay? I'll even hug you till it's awkward. Uh, I mean... You just name it and we'll do it. So anyway, wanted to say that. And I was thinking about this series on resilience, how appropriate that we talk about resilience on Mother's Day because I don't think there's anyone more resilient than moms. You think about this, I, I've, I pointed out in this series that the American Psychological Association definition of resilience is this. It's the process and the outcome of successfully adapting to challenging and difficult life experiences. Moms do that every day before 10 a.m. I mean they put on a clinic of what it means to resilient. They are just resilient people. So if you want to understand resilience, look at a mom, watch them, learn their lessons. They will teach you. In fact, the writer of Proverbs knew this. He wrote in Proverbs chapter one: do not forsake your mother's teachings, even the way she teaches with your with her life. Do not forsake your mother's teachings. They will be a garland to grace your head and a chain to adorn your neck. Your mother's teachings, I heard an amen from one mom, your mother's teachings, that'll be your drip, as the kids say. You listen to your mama, and your life will be better. Now, I'm not your mama, but I think if you'll listen to this sermon today, when it comes to resilience, we will have another building block to help us be the most resilient people at all. And we've been talking about resilience and the wisdom from Babylon learning from those primarily out of the book of Daniel, not exclusively, but those who have found themselves exiled in Babylon. They're there against their wishes. It's not what they would choose. It's a difficult season for them. But they're in the literal location of Babylon. And not only is it wisdom from Babylon, but it's wisdom for Babylon. Because metaphorically speaking, in our lives, there are times when we find ourselves in a place with certain circumstances or situations, some downturns, some health issues, some relational breakdown, career path, finances, a season of life that we would not choose to be in, and it's very difficult. And how is it that in those seasons, in those events, in those Babylons, we can be resilient? So we've been looking in the book of Daniel, and today we'll be looking in Daniel chapter three specifically and in Daniel chapter 3, you have one of the most familiar stories, the top two familiar, familiar stories of the entire book of Daniel. So with its familiarity, I won't be spending a lot of time on the details of the events of this story, but looking at, a, at a, more of a principle out of that. Um, but if you're not familiar with the story, I would encourage you to read it, Daniel chapter 3, uh, later this afternoon. But this story is so familiar for many of us who are raised in church, I mean, we saw this story on the flannel board. We saw this whole thing. Maybe we acted it out at Vacation Bible School. We heard sermons on it. It's just so familiar. It's so familiar, in fact, though maybe not all the details. The names in this story are familiar with people who were not even raised in church, people who aren't even followers of Jesus. And for the first time in my 30 years of being the senior pastor, today I want to quote for you the Beastie Boys. Never have I ever. Quoted the Beastie Boys, but nothing says Happy Mother's Day like lyrics from the Beastie Boys on Mother's Day at church. The Beastie Boys said, we're just three MCs and we're on the go, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, even if the Beastie Boys know about this, it's a pretty familiar story that we're going to look at. Now these three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they find themselves in exile. And if you've been with us in this series, I've given you the backstory. Why is there any of the Jewish people in exile? What happened? When did this happen? How did it happen? Who was involved? And over the course of several years, from 605 to 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar seized Judah and Jerusalem three different times and went that he took tens of thousands of these Jewish people into exile, into Babylon, up on the Euphrates River, what today would be uh, we call Iraq. And in one of these campaigns, he takes some of these young men, men under 20 years of age, the up-and-coming leaders of Israel, And this is where we find our guys. In Daniel chapter 1, verse 6, it says, Among those were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And we've looked at their lives. They're taken away from their families and their city, and they're taken into Babylon, and they're given Babylonian names, trying to change their identity. Daniel becomes known as Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes known as Shadrach. Mishael becomes known as Meshach. And Azariah becomes known as Abednego. Abednego. Still trying to kind of work on that Abindigo that we were all raised with. Abednego. And here are these three guys. And I think that you can build a pretty solid case that the three of them, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that they're connected not just because they were in Babylon together. I think it's a pretty safe bet that they may have grown up together. It's possible, possible that two or maybe all three of them could have been brothers. It's possible as well that they may have been cousins, family units staying together. We do know that they are friends. In Daniel chapter 2, verse 17, it says Daniel went to his friends, the friends, they are friends. But here are these three guys, and they go through all the ups and downs of life together, and it kind of unites them. It it, it draws them together. They've experienced the hardships, the difficulties, and they've walked with it. About 20 years ago, HBO came out with a series called Band of Brothers, Easy Company. These these guys who, according to to, uh, Kip's terminology, have gone through the mud and the blood together. I mean, it's a military term. They've been in the trenches together. They've taken on the gunfire together. They've done the hardships of life together, this Band of Brothers Before the band of brothers, Tolkien wrote about the fellowship, the fellowship of the ring, these nine walkers, that they are united together for this mission, this cause, that's going to bring goodness to our world. Before the fellowship of the ring, there were the three musketeers, all for one, one for all. We're in this together. And before all of that, and maybe sparking all of that, Shakespeare wrote in the life of King Henry V, when King Henry goes up before his troops and a speech on uh, uh, St. Crispin's Day, he says this line, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. There's something about that. And I want to suggest that before all of that, We have these guys, the original band, the original band of brothers, these guys that are united together for a a common mission, a common purpose, that have their lives in the mud and the blood and doing these things together. And for just a few minutes, I want to paint for you a hypothetical, possible picture of their life. This is not biblical. This is biblical. This is out of my head. I'm creating this could have been that these three guys grew up together in the streets of Jerusalem. Their families were neighbors, maybe they were cousins, but as little kids, they would be out in the alleyway behind their house, kicking the ball around in the streets of Jerusalem, and they would grow up together. And as they got a little bit older, maybe eight years old, their parents trusted them with a little more freedom, they could go out of the neighborhood, and maybe these three boys in the spring of the year, would go down to the spring. Or maybe they would go to the well. Or maybe they would go to where there's some water. And there they would find in the pool of Siloam tadpoles that they would catch. Or on those hot August afternoons, they would go down and they would swim in the pool. And they just did life together as kids do. And two years later, they're 10 years old, they have a little more freedom. Their parents let them venture outside the walls of Jerusalem and they go into the Kidron Valley and they play hide and seek and they run around and they chase each other. A couple years later, as they're 12, they venture even farther out. In the fall of the year after the olive harvest, they go across the Kidron Valley up onto the Mount of Olives over there by Gethsemane. And the olives that weren't quite ripe when they were picked and the ones that were dropped, they began to have olive fights like 12-year-old boys would. Throwing olives at each other. Hey, no headshots. Come on. And years later, 14 years old, they're having a sleepover and staying up late one night, seeing how late they can stay up. One of them says, I bet you guys are too scared to walk through Hezekiah's tunnel. No, we're not. And the 14-year-old male bravado begins to elevate and escalate. And they begin to dare and challenge each other. So they sneak out. And they take the back alleys down to the Gihon Spring. All of them scared to death, but not one of them willing to say that. And in the cover of night, they walk through Hezekiah's tunnel and come out on the other side high-fiving with memories for all of life, just doing life together but it's not just fun and games for them. They go to school together and the teacher notices something about these guys. They're sharp. You don't have to ask them to do their homework. They they seem to be sponges. They like to learn. They they quickly rise to the top of their class. And not only that, but while it's a tumultuous time in Judah and the king is an evil, wicked man, they come from solid, God-fearing homes been raised with the Torah, and they're taught the Torah, they're taught the Pentateuch, they're taught the law of God. And they even go to the synagogue there, and and there Rabbi Moshi teaches them about the Ten Commandments, and they begin to memorize the the Old Testament, and, and they would sing the Psalms that were written hundreds of years before. And then one day, after they sang the Psalms, after they quoted some of the laws, Rabbi Moshi takes them to the wisdom literature From the teacher. And he reads them this verse from Ecclesiastes 4. Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. A cord of three strands is not quickly broken. And then the rabbi sends them off to just ask questions of the text. What is the text saying to us? What does this mean? And these three are in a group. And Hananiah says, guys... Don't you see it? That's us. We're the cord of three strands. We do everything together. And Azariah says, yeah, we ought to have a secret handshake. And they come up with a handshake where their pinky and their thumb crossed, but the three fingers are out there to grip. That's us. You Don't shake anyone else's hand like it's just us three. Mishael, who's a little more the creative of the three, he says, hey, I've got the. What do you guys think about this? We will not fade nor be afraid. Three brothers an unyielding braid. Oh, yeah. That became their little anthem, and they took strings, three of them, and they began to braid these bracelets that they would wear. This brotherhood of believers, they entered into a pact together. We will do life together. And they do. But two years later, their life falls apart. Jerusalem is sieged by the Babylonians. They are taken from their homes. They're taken from their families. They see the temple destroyed, the walls knocked down, the buildings burned. And now they're taken off to Babylon. Babylon. And these three 17-year-old boys find them for themselves for the next two months, making the 700-mile journey to Babylon. Under other circumstances, it would have been amazing, I suppose, to go to Babylon, the biggest city on the face of the planet, the seat of the reigning world power to walk into that city and to see the hanging gardens of Babylon that Nebuchadnezzar himself built. And speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, his palace where he spared no expense and there the raging, beautiful Euphrates River. It would have been amazing to visit there. Except this was not their choice. And they're taken against their will as exiles And they enter into a season of indoctrination where their names are changed and they're taught the literature and the philosophies and the language of the Babylonians. And somehow, though there have been tens of thousands of Jews that have been exiled into Babylon by the providential hand of God, these three are allowed to remain together. And occasionally, they'll shake hands with their secret handshake. And they might whisper those familiar words that they came up with. We will not fade nor be afraid. Three brothers, an unyielding braid. And Michelle, in his heartbreak, comes up with a second verse. Or desert sands to distant lands, we stand as one, cord with three strands, together. Now, in Daniel chapter 3, we find what they face, probably the biggest test of their life. And as I said, the familiarity of it is such that I don't want to spend any time really on too much of the details there. But what we will find in Daniel chapter 3 is what allowed these guys to be resilient at a different level. And I think we will learn wisdom from Babylon for our Babylon. Of what is it that can allow us to take our resilience to the next level in those seasons, in those difficult times, in those events that happen in our lives. And the key is found in Daniel chapter 3. If it's not the greatest, one of the greatest factors of resilience is community. It's this vibrant gathering this community together where there's support and where there's encouragement and where we can face these things and and rise above them in the midst of them. And I would say this, if ever in our world we need this, it's now. Uh, In the last couple of weeks, I've read several different articles from, by the way, from different news sources, so it's not just a slanted political article. But in these articles that are related, phrases like, a new epidemic, not COVID, maybe the ripple effects of COVID, but a new epidemic that's sweeping our country. Phrases like unprecedented health crisis. And the epidemic is the epidemic of loneliness, such that the Surgeon General, Surgeon General Murthy, he even chimed in that the loneliness that's sweeping across our nation that we're experiencing is not just a mental and emotional type of an issue, though it is, that it's making its way into our health of our physical bodies, so much so that Surgeon General Murthy would say the loneliness that many are experiencing is equivalent physically to smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having six alcoholic drinks a day, and in fact, the loneliness increases your possibility of premature death by 26%. I mean, we need community not just for resilience, just for the baseline of life to stay alive. The most thorough and probably best known study about this was done years ago by a Harvard social scientist. It's called the Alameda County Study. And in this study, the study was of 7,000 people Over the course of nine years, this was the finding of these nine years of 7,000 people. Researchers found that the most isolated people were three times more likely to die than those with strong relational connections. Three times more. People who had bad health habits, such as smoking, poor eating habits, obesity, or alcohol use, but had strong social ties, lived significantly longer than people who had great health habits, but were isolated. In other words, it's better to eat Twinkies with good friends than to eat broccoli alone. Can I get an amen? That's why we sell donuts and not a salad bar out here. Harvard researcher Robert Putnam notes that if you belong to no groups but decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. Now what we see with these three guys is that the community that they developed around them allowed them to be resilient at a new level. In the very first uh, chapter, when Daniel, that great verse when it says Daniel resolved not to defile himself and it was a dietary thing. He brings these three guys in and together as a community, they do this. They rise above this. Last week when Pastor Brian was talking about this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had and and, and that he couldn't couldn't in in any way uh, interpret it, in in Daniel chapter 2 verse uh, 36, it says this, this was the dream and now we will interpret it to the king. They did this in community. And we'll find this again in chapter three. Now, most scholars would believe that between Daniel chapter two and Daniel chapter three, there's a lapse of about 20 years. So there's a lot of things that have happened, not recorded. Last time we saw them in Daniel chapter two, they're 17 years old. They're being indoctrinated. They're, they're, they're being schooled and they're whole, trying to be brainwashed. But they land these prominent positions in the provinces of Babylon. And now 20 years have gone by. So now these guys are not 17, but they're probably around 37. They're in their late 30s at this point. And what happens is, again, you're, many of you are very familiar with the story. Nebuchadnezzar, who's never given to doing anything small with the hanging gardens in his palace, he sets up this image, 90 feet tall and 9 feet wide in gold. And while there's no proof of this, many believe that in his narcissistic way, the image was actually a very large statue of himself. And this is what he mandates regarding this statue. Daniel chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, lyre, harp, pipes, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. This is the first instance of cancel culture. A very big version of cancel culture. You don't do what we tell you, you don't do what everybody else does, we are going to cancel you literally with fire. And it appears, it appears that many, because remember, there were tens of thousands of Jewish people that have been exiled, that many, in fact, maybe all or most of them, went along with it, bowing down. But when everyone bows down, there are three guys who are standing, and it's hard to be inconspicuous when everyone's bowing and you're standing like a small grove of three trees amongst a field. And here, while these guys have been in exile for 20 years, more than half of their life, it appears they still hold on to the Ten Commandments that they learned when they were kids. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make a graven image. And they refuse. And they stand while everyone else bows down. Well, word of this gets back to Nebuchadnezzar in verse 12. But there were some Jews, they said to him, whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, O king. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold that you have set up. They stand. They stand tall. They stand strong. They stand firm. They stand together. Well, I was thinking about this whole idea of, of this standing together. I was thinking about an experience I had about six years ago. For many, many years, um, I, I'd heard about a marathon in Northern California that I wanted to run someday. It's called the Avenue of the Giants, and it runs through the redwoods of Northern California. And I'd always dreamed about this. So finally, the, the day came. My friend Rick and I, we talked. We were going to train. We're going to run this together. And, And uh, our wives went, they ran the half marathon. And so we were there and uh, registered for this marathon. And the day before, we had some free time. And so just driving through the Redwood Forest and learning more about these trees, spectacular. In fact, I've got a picture of one of these trees with my wife in front of it. This is not one of the biggest ones, but it kind of illustrates the size of some of these trees. And finding out the information about these trees, that they can be as tall as 350 feet I mean, that, that's remarkable how tall they are. And, and what's amazing is how old they are. Most of them are hundreds of years old. Some are even thousands. They, they estimate some over 2,000 years old, these trees. When Jesus rose from the dead, some of them are just being planted and they're still growing today. And they've weathered the droughts and the storms and the forest fires and they talked about the bark and how that's fire resistant and how they could still be alive 2,000 years later and so tall. What was so shocking to me was when I found out the disproportionate size of the tree with the depth of their roots. That these trees that can tower up to 350 feet tall, their roots only go down six, maybe max 10 feet. That doesn't even make sense. Now, I know last week, Pastor Brian talked about the palm tree and its roots and all that. He stole my illustration. But here's the truth. (laughs) Palm trees, like Brian, are much shorter than redwoods. And their lives don't last nearly as long. So So with these trees that are so tall, and, and the comparison, I mean, if you put a tree, a redwood tree in comparison, let's say, to the Statue of Liberty, I have this image, Statue of Liberty from the bottom of the base to the tip of the torch is 305 feet. These trees tower above even the Statue of Liberty, and yet the foundation of the Statue of Liberty goes down 53 feet. Why is it? That a shorter structure with a wider base would have to have a foundation 53 feet while a redwood far taller and older could only go down 6 to 10 feet. And the reason is Lady Liberty stands by herself. But redwood trees never grow alone. They always grow in groves. And while their roots are not deep, Their roots are braided together so that when the storms come through and the winds blow, it doesn't blow a tree down. It would have to blow the entire forest down. And with these trees, as as well as these guys, they're standing together in the storms. They don't stand by themselves. They're braided together so, our guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar. They're warned what's going to happen. They're reminded what will happen if they don't bow down. And their response is amazing. In fact, their response, the the verse I'm going to read here in just a second, it warrants its entire sermon. I won't give it to you today. It's a perfect three-point sermon or a three-part series because in these short verses, They talk about their trust and their faith in God, their dedication and their devotion to God, and their resolve for God. It's spectacular. It's a great sermon that I'm not going to preach today. What I want you to see is this principle that's woven all throughout that. Daniel chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Notice what's highlighted. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to save us from it. And he will rescue us from your hand, O king. But even if he does not, we want you to know, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. They're doing this together in community. They're being resilient together. 2015, 2016, I was able to travel to South Africa. And one of those trips, we went to Robben Island, uh, which is where Nelson Mandela spent 17, I believe, 18 of his 27 years in prison, incarcerated out on Robben Island during apartheid. And uh, went out there to tour the facility and the island. And and during those years, we we heard about what went on with 3,000 prisoners that were held out on this island during apartheid and Nelson Mandela being one of them. And how during those years, he could receive one visitor a year for 30 minutes. He could receive one letter every six months. And he was subjected to hard labor. If you see any picture of Nelson Mandela, I I would imagine you will always see him with dark glasses on. And the reason is because they had to work in these these limestone mines and kilns in the white rock and the light reflect off damage to, to permanent de- eye damage. And yet he and many of these guys, they were resilient. In his book, Longing Home, he, he writes these words, the authority's greatest mistake was to keep us together. For together, our determination was reinforced. We supported each other and gained strength from each other. Whatever we knew, whatever we learned, we shared. And by sharing, we We multiplied whatever courage we had individually. He said, if they would have separated, this is why solitary confinement or isolation is so effective. He said, if they would have separated us, we would not have had the resolve. We would have not had the strength. We would not have been resilient. And isn't that what God's word says to us all the time? Romans 15, where it says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves, to come alongside. You don't face this alone. Romans chapter 12, where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. That together, when we're going through a victory, we celebrate it together and we magnify and expound its its joy. And when we're going through difficult times, we don't shoulder it alone. We come along and bear one another's burdens so that the, the heaviness is diminished. That's how the body of Christ is supposed to work. No one facing a storm alone. Maybe this is why Jesus, when he sent his disciples out, sent them out two by two. So they'd never be alone. And speaking of Jesus, for a guy like me who was raised in the church, grew up with scripture, for me, understanding Jesus in his Godhead, the divine nature of Jesus being one with the Father, I have no problem with that. I think where I struggle more is with the humanity of Jesus, because I know here, oh yeah, yeah, he was a human, but he was God. And it's like that overshadows, that trumps it all. Yeah, he's kind of human, but no, no, he was completely human. See, others, and some of you as well, have no problem with the human historical Jesus. It's this divine peace that you're struggling with. But for many of us, we have really a hard time seeing Jesus as a human, facing everything that we've faced. And yet we see this picture of the humanity of Jesus when he faces the ultimate Babylon. The night before he's crucified, Matthew records, he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Watch this. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is the humanity of Jesus. Did not want to be alone at this moment. And we get this at different levels, different Babylons, sorrow, loss, grieving, hardship. We don't want to be alone. Sometimes we don't need any words from anyone. We just need their presence. Just be here with me. Jesus, in the darkest hour, didn't want to be alone. So let's go back to our guys here and, again, give me grace as I hypothetically spell out these last moments. They've refused to bow to this image. And so the scripture says that they're bound, probably their hands and their feet, And again, hypothetically, possibly, as they're standing there, watching them heat up the furnace furnace hotter than it's ever been. They stand there, and one of them says, so I guess this is it, huh, guys? This is how it all ends. One of them says, yeah, guys, we've been together from the cradle to the grave Ashes to ashes. And then Ezra says, hey guys, 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 guys. Look at the rope. Look at the rope. Three strands. Guys remember? It's us. We will not fade never be afraid. Three brothers an unyielding braid or desert sands and foreign lands we stand as one cord of three strands. Guys, this has been our life. We've done it together. See on the other side. And then they're taken and thrown into the furnace. For the sake of time, we'll have to fast forward. They're not consumed by the fire. Their life is not taken. The only thing that's consumed by the fire is the things that bind them. And Nebuchadnezzar, while he sets this up, not only to punish them, but to send a message to the entire kingdom, don't cross the king, he is shocked. His response to what he sees in Daniel chapter 3.25, he said, look. I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unarmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. The fourth one is not Daniel. Daniel's probably off in some other part of the the, the empire. Who knows where he is? He's not even mentioned in chapter 3. They threw three in, but there's a fourth one in there. And Nebuchadnezzar himself, who's not a God-fearing man, says he looks like a son of the gods. This is what is referred to as a Christophany. An appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. J.C. in the B.C. He shows up, says, let me give you a little preview. Let me show you a trailer of what's to come. Let me give you an appetizer, a little test, taste to whet your appetite of what's going to happen. And Jesus shows up says, I think I'll go down for a second. And what they find is that they're experiencing the presence of the fourth. There were three of them, and they were there together, and there was a community, but there was a fourth. Now, many of you know that 10 days ago was Star Wars Day. May 4th, may the 4th be with you. Maybe from now on, may the 4th be with you. Points us to Jesus. The 4th one that walks into the fire with us. I mean, didn't Jesus say, wherever two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst? And go, yeah, 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 we know that Jesus will never leave us or forsake us. And he's always with us. But could it be? Could it be that there's a divine mystery that sometimes we don't even understand? That yes, Jesus will always be with you. It's always you and Jesus. But there is something that happens when there's more than just one, where there are two or three in his name, that there's a, a level or an a, 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 a aspect of his presence that can only be experienced in community. Could that be? Dallas Willard in his book, The Spirit of the Disciplines, which, by the way, is a book that I did read, the only Dallas Willard book I've read, so, we're not talking about divine conspiracy. I read this one. I'm pretty excited about this. In Spirit of the Disciplines, when he talks about this concept of Christian fellowship beyond the cookies in the basement, he says this personalities united can contain more of God and sustain the force of his greater presence much better than scattered individuals. He goes on to paint this picture of firebrands, coals that when they're separated, there's, but there's something that happens when they're brought together, and that there's this divine presence, this mystery, when we gather together with others. See, the truth is this anyone can experience resilience, help in community, but those of us who are followers of Christ, there's something even extra the presence of the fourth. Jesus walking with us through those difficult seasons. Now, there is one other thing. And that is taking a preemptive measures. Because you cannot wait until you're in the flames to start looking for fellowship. It's too late at that point. You cannot wait until the storm hits you to find someone to stand with you. For these three guys... It had been years of life together, building trust, building relationships, pouring into one another, their lives braided together. And we need to nurture that in our lives as well. Uh, This last year, Calvin and Anna Lorenz, their two daughters, go to our church. Anna was in this horrible car accident. I, I believe they had to use the jaws of life to get her out of her vehicle. She's in the hospital and surgeries and procedures trying to save her life. And all the while, she has a business, and Calvin has his work and a side business, and their daughters, and one of them had a birthday, and one of them had cheerleading and all this stuff, and all of life, and they got hit by this storm of life. And one of the times when I was up at the hospital visiting with them, they were both up there and prayed with them. We were talking, and I said, hey, so Calvin, what, what do you... What, what, how, how can we help? What do you need? And he and Anna said, you know what? Our small group has been unbelievable. Calvin says, we have more food than we know what to do with. People have helped transport the girls to their activities, helped them pick up the slack in the business thing. They, they're there for us, and they're just helping in every way. And then they made this statement. They are like family to us. Have this community so that when the storms hit, they don't have to start looking for, is there anyone in my life that can support me here? In 1 Thessalonians, we read chapter 2, verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Some of you have this kind of community in your life. What I want to say is fan the flame of that community. Do not let it wane. Because you will need it someday. And even if you don't, they will need you someday. Some of you have a bit of that. It's kind of there, but it's not really there. My challenge to you is foster that community. And maybe even this week. Just one step And maybe an appropriate step of vulnerability to reveal a little bit more of yourself. Maybe a a question. Maybe it's taking it on a deeper level in a conversation. To just begin to deepen that community. And some of you may say, I don't have that at all. Listen, you need that community and you need to be a part of a community. And I don't know what the first step for you is maybe to sign up and get a part of a small group, be in a serving ministry. It's not going to happen overnight, but to begin to develop that so that your lives are intertwined with others' lives, and when the hardships come, we can stand like an avenue of giants, resilient in the midst of it.